unity, even though we may not come down in the same place on conscience issues, issues where even the Bible gives us room for disagreement. And I know we've been here a long time, and I'm asking you to endure, all right? Give me two more weeks. Can you do that? Can you give me two more weeks, and then we'll get into our study of the book of Galatians. And so I would encourage you to go ahead and start reading that book. Um, but I want to spend the next two weeks making sure that we have these 12 principles of unity understood and practiced. And I don't want to sound like I'm scolding when I say, but don't get bored with Bible principles. Now, you can get bored with a preacher, and he's plenty boring, I promise. But don't get bored with Bible principles. As a matter of fact, what I, what I really hope is happening, I hope that what I'm doing is just encouraging you to go home and dig deeper. You say, we've been in this a year and a half. How deep can we go? We can go a whole lot deeper. All right, I won't. But you should. I, I hope you do understand that preaching, preaching is not designed to teach you everything you need to know about God. Preaching is designed to make you curious so you can learn more on your own. But we are at principle number nine, and we're going to finish this up. We started it last week. We're going to finish up principle number nine today, and then we're going to combine, we're willing, principles 10, 11, and 12 this coming Lord's Day. Principle number nine is based on a phrase in verse number 22, Romans chapter 14, verse 22, has thou faith. Now remember, in this context, the faith is not talking about saving faith. How do we know that? Because then he goes on and he says, have it to yourself before God. Some have actually said, well, see, we shouldn't even, we, we shouldn't talk about God, we shouldn't talk about the Bible, because the Bible says right here, if you keep your faith between you and God. That's not what this says. This is saying, the word faith here is is faith or confidence to do some of the things that are being dealt with. To, you have a strong enough conscience that, that some of these gray areas are okay. You have a strong enough faith in this text to, to eat the meat that was offered to idols. Even though some people wouldn't, you may have a strong enough faith that lets you do that. The point is, wherever you come down on these issues of conscience, it is ultimately between you and God. And so we don't have the right, we certainly don't have the responsibility to make everybody think like us. Our work as believers is to encourage people to think like Christ. And there's not a one of us in this room 
who does that like we should. There is none of us in this room who thinks like Jesus 100% of the time and gets it 100% right. So there's room for growth for all of us. Last week we talked about, again, principle number nine, if you have freedom, if you have a stronger conscience, don't flaunt it or don't parade it. If you're more strict or have a more sensitive conscience, don't expect others to be strict or sensitive like you. If you have a stronger conscience, don't think that those who have a less or, or a more sensitive conscience are any less godly than you are or you're any less spiritual than you are. And the same could be said on the other way around. If you're more sensitive, don't think that just because people can do things you choose not to, that that makes them ungodly or unspiritual. And what I find is that many of us live there. We live in the place where we are more sensitive in our conscience, and so we expect others to live or dress or act or talk or restrict themselves like we do when what we're really doing, and take, don't, you know, I'm trying not to be irreverent here, when we're actually being more strict than God is. So there's principle number nine. Our, our discussion started looking at a path to disunity. Unity, of course, you know, is the theme of this whole section, starting in chapter 12, 13, 14, and the first part of chapter 15. And if you want to create disunity, here's how to do it. Parade your freedom. Parade in the sense of arrogantly show off so that others think you're spiritual, at least this is what you want them to think, you're spiritual and they're not. Don't parade your freedom to the point that you look down on those who don't have the freedom you do and think them to be sticks in the mud or old fuddy-duddies or whatever Christian term you want to use for them, all right? On the opposite end of that spectrum again, don't police other standards. Don't go around with a ruler measuring him lines, spiritually speaking, or literally speaking, all right? Don't police other people's standards. And if you want to kill unity, that's going to do it. By the way, that also kills evangelism, and it kills joy, all right? So today we want to take that even a step further, not just the path to disunity. There is also the danger that this can put us on a path to outright heresy. Now you know what heresy is, right? Heresy is false teaching. Heresy is teaching that is contrary to God's teaching. 
So when it comes to the heresy that this kind of spirit or this kind of these kinds of attitudes and actions portray, the heresy primarily is focused on damage to the gospel itself. And that is illustrated actually, folks, through us throughout the New Testament. Paul was constantly, we talked about this, Paul was constantly battling those who were adding to the gospel and saying, like he's confronting here in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and Romans, like you would say, Romans 12 through 14, he's the book of Galatians, the book of Titus, he's constantly confronting this thing of the gospel plus makes us believers. The gospel plus makes us like Christ rather than the gospel alone. So anytime we add to or take away from the gospel as it's given by God himself, it's heresy. So let's look at the pathway to heresy as it relates to these conscience issues. So would you, would you turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again, this is the same kind of discussion, not exactly the same as far as Situations or it's not the same people, but he is dealing with issues related to eating meat that is offered to idols. He's, he's writing to the church that was located in the city of Corinth. And there were in the city of Corinth, we know that Corinth was a very wicked city. We know that some of the people in the church at Corinth were unbelievers, just outright unbelievers, very visible and vocal unbelievers as far as their lifestyles were concerned. But there were also some in the church of Corinth who had at one time been swept up in the culture of Corinth, living according to the culture of Corinth, but they had come to know Christ and they were radically changed by the gospel. But they still had a sensitive conscience because of their path. They had a sensitive conscience because of some of the things that they did. They had people who had come out of idolatry and part of the, the part of the rituals that they would have taken part in had to do with being in, in what we might call the service, all right? They had temples dedicated to these idols, and you would go, and you would have your quote-unquote worship service, and part of what would happen is the, the priest or whatever they would call him would get up and make his prayer and make his dedication and to, to the god or the goddess, and then he would bring some meat and he would he would offer that to the God or the goddess and then they would feed or they would eat that meat. And some of the people saying out of idolatry who are now followers of Christ would not eat meat that even they bought in the marketplace because they didn't know if it had come from one of those temples of idolatry and they didn't want to take any take part in anything that might have to do with that. And everybody in this room understands that. We can understand why that might be an issue. You know what? In our day, let me let me put it this way. I grew up in a home where my dad was was an alcoholic. I talked to you about that. 
I was surrounded by it in my... I, I had no memories of my father. I, sh- I shouldn't say I had two memories of my father when he was not drunk. Let me just put it that way. All right? So I'm very sensitive about alcohol. Some people would say I'm too sensitive. Okay? I, I'm okay where I am with it. I would not go into a liquor store to buy a Coca-Cola. Does that mean it's sin to do that? No. It would be for me. Alright, you see my point? Sometimes our backgrounds affect our conscience sensitivities. So we can understand a little bit of where the church, the people in Corinth, are coming from based on what they've been in. Paul and others in the church of Corinth said, you know what, idols are nothing. So when a priest stands up and and he dedicates meat to an idol, he's really dedicating the meat to nothing. So eating the meat is not really sin. So some people could eat it. And that was creating conflict in the church of Corinth. So let's start reading at verse number 20. But I say to you that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, unbelievers sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils. Now, Paul has said, idols are nothing, but now he's trying to get us to see that there may be a little more to it than, than just ignoring it altogether or being totally insensitive about this issue. The things that they sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not God. And I would I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot partake. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he What's Paul's point here? Paul's point is, no, an idol is nothing. And like he says to the to the even the Roman believers, if you eat meat offered to idols and your conscience allows you to do that, God bless you. But be very careful. If you have a strong conscience, be very careful that you aren't just totally ignoring some very obvious evil that might be taking place. Again, we let's talk Bible culture, let's talk culture in Corinth. Eating meat during the time in which Paul is writing was actually a, a luxury. Few people could afford it. It was a luxury item. And in one of these pagan feasts, some people could eat enough meat to last them for a month. All right? They would literally gorge themselves. And there were Christians. There were Christians who wouldn't just take the meat home and eat it. There were Christians who would go to the 
temple of idolatry at Eden. And so they were taking part in the quote-unquote fellowship of devils. Do you see the difference? It's not like they buy the meat in the marketplace and they take it home and eat it on their own. It's that they're going to the place now where the service is actually happening and they're taking part in the service or at least they're sitting there in the service and they're eating meat that is very obviously dedicated to an idol. One commentator I was studying put it this way. The Christians were attending only for the food and the friendship and didn't even pay attention to the little opening ceremony that some pagan priest presided over. He, the priest, said some meaningless chant and presented some of the meat to some empty idol and it didn't have any more meaning than a prayer before a football game in Texas. I'm not sure why Texas was important there, but you get the point. But Paul is saying to these believers, you're being careless. You're being careless. There's a difference between eating the meat in your own home, on your own time, but by fellowshipping, taking part in by unifying yourself with idolatry, you're participating in idolatry. Just by being there, those Christians were damaging the gospel. The language there in 1 Corinthians 10, you, we actually are very familiar with because this coming Lord's Day, we're going to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. The language of 1 Corinthians 10 here in verse 22, you have the Lord's table and the table of devils. We can, later, we can read it this way. You have the Lord's Supper, and you have the Devil's Supper. It's an act of worship. So here's the point. Those with a strong conscience can take their conscience issues to the point of damaging the gospel. How does it start? It starts with Contempt for those who are more sensitive. Just this spirit, and this is where the this, this is the disunity side of things, remember? Just this spirit of looking down on them like, how, how can they not do how why can't they see this? Why, why they're just they're they're just not spiritual or they're they're just not thinking or whatever the case may be. I have freedom to eat meat, and those who don't are being unreasonable. Or they're not theologically correct. They just, they just aren't getting it right. The Bible is clear. Why can't they see it? When they're seeing the Bible is clear in a different way. It starts there, but then it moves to what we might call lawlessness. 
That's where the church at Corinth was, as far as those who were going to the, to the place of idolatry. They, they literally were ignoring some very clear commands of God, like have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And that's why they might be thinking to themselves, I have freedom not only to eat the meat, but go to the parties at the idol temples. There are places we should not go, people. There are places we should not go. When there is very obvious sin taking place. I know what time of year it is, and I, I don't want to make anybody mad, but I'm probably going to. You're used to that by now. This is one of the reasons I don't encourage parents or I encourage parents to not let your kids go to a prom. Because there is sin taking place. Well, my kids can be salt and light. Well, they can do it in other places besides the prom. Now, do Christians agree, disagree with me on that? Yeah, they do. And they let their kids go to prom, and that's between them and the Lord. And that's the point. But it moves to lawlessness. And you can apply your own struggles or questions here about whatever particular issue we talk about. But it moves from just this contempt to lawlessness and then it becomes a total distortion of the gospel. Because let me just ask you this, mom and dad, teenager, if you go to the prom and you have, you have people there that you've been trying to share the gospel with and you've been talking about the holiness of God and you've been talking about how God is separate from uh, sin and, and set apart from all, and, and yet you're participating. And that maybe distort the gospel? Create questions? The fact is, folks, God has boundaries. God has boundaries. He has said there are some things we should not do. Places we should not go. Things we should not see. Words we should not say. God has boundaries. And when we cross the boundaries in the name of freedom, we are damaging what people think about God and the gospel. I'll tell you something else that it does. It not only creates questions about God, it presents a shallow view of repentance. I think one of the most dangerous trends in our day is this attitude that as long as we're sincere, we can do whatever we want to do. As long as we have this sincere response to whatever the case may be, 
then it's okay. And and if we're if we're insincere about it, then that and, and we do it, that's hypocrisy. But if we're sincere about it, no matter what it is, and we do it, that's not hypocrisy. You know what, folks? That's heresy. <coughs> Sincerity has sent many multitudes of people to hell. When we present a false view of God and the gospel, we're showing that we can have God and live the way we want to live. And why do I say that's a shallow view of repentance? For this reason. Because salvation is a commitment to a king, not having a little Jesus and living the way I want to live. Not going to hell, but living like a sinner until I get to heaven. That's how some people literally view salvation. I live whatever way I want to live as long as I pray the prayer, as long as I got baptized, as long as I go to church. I'm going to heaven, but I can live like a hellion on earth until I get there. That's not salvation. That's false teaching. You see, we're taking away from the gospel. We're taking away from the fact that God is holy. We're taking away from the fact that repentance means, yes, I, I, when I'm born into this world, I'm born headed a certain direction, and that's a sinner headed to hell. But when I realize I'm a sinner, and I want a Savior more than I want my sin. It's a little turning my back on those things and turning to Christ and, and being willing to say now, I want Jesus. I don't want my sin. And so we present a shallow view of repentance and we certainly, those who are taking away from the gospel, present a weakened view of the fact that Jesus is king. So if you have a stronger conscience, please be very careful. Now, if you have a sensitive conscience, how can you, how can you be on this pathway to heresy? Go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Here's another one of those situations. Paul and others are confronting about this issue. This chapter tells the story of what you and I refer to sometimes as the Jerusalem Council. It's just a gathering of godly men who, because the church is so new in the world and because things are happening, Jewish people are getting saved, but non-Jewish people are getting saved and where the gospel has been primarily going to the Jewish people now that non-Jewish people, Gentiles are getting saved. It's creating some heartburn and turmoil in the church and there are some who are saying, well, in order for these Gentiles to truly be saved, then they have to, yes, accept the gospel by faith, but then they have to keep the law. So that brings us to chapter 15. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised, which was the sign of the putting away of the flesh, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses. Notice this next phrase, 
you cannot be saved. Now class, from what you know about the gospel, is what they are teaching right? No. No. It is not. The strong in Corinth moved into lawlessness. And so, it may be that some of us are thinking, well, you know what? To make sure that I don't take anything away from the gospel and to make sure that I don't move into this area of lawlessness, I'm just going to be real strict about everything in my life. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm. I, I'm not going to go here, and I'm not going to. Go, and there are some places we we don't go, and yes, there's some things we don't do, but we might be tempted just to be very strict in everything in our life, and expect others to be as strict as we are, and be just as heretical as what we're trying to avoid. When we get into our study on the book of Galatians, we're going to see that that church, that, that region, those folks have some of these same issues. So in Galatia, some of the strict believers went so far as to insist that people who did not obey the, the law as far as its food restrictions and food laws and circumcision laws, then they could not be Christians. And yet Paul calls the people who taught that, he called them Judaizers, he called them false teachers. And it was a heresy that according to Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 9 was so severe that Paul said, they deserve to go to hell. They were teaching a false doctrine, a false gospel. So how does it work for the sensitive? Well, it begins with condemning. Where the strong show contempt, the sensitive condemn. In other words, say things like, it's sinful to be Christians who do so aren't being faithful to God. Well, the fact is, that whole statement is wrong. It's not always wrong to, in this context, eat meat, all right? In our day, it's not always wrong to watch TV. It's not always wrong to watch a movie. It's not, you, 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 you know, we have to bring culture. You know, the Bible uh, affects our culture, and so we have to apply it that way. So in the context of Corinth, in the context of Galatia, in the context of Rome, it is the sensitive will say, sinful at any time to eat meat. And anyone who does, is disobedient. They're unfaithful to God. And that's obviously not true. So, but it just, it moves from just condemning to being extremely legalistic. And this is, this is, by the way, the right definition of the word legalism. Strictly speaking, legalism is the idea that you must Add to the gospel the legal laws of the Old Testament to, to be a Christian. 
But again, let's bring the application into our culture. What does that look like? Well, let me say it this way. Those who are strict may be prone to an even more serious error, all right? Namely, the error is this, that insisting everyone must hold your belief in order to be a Christian, that's legalism. When you say that holding a particular view on a disputable matter is necessary to be a Christian, you've crossed the line in the legalism. You've added to the gospel. Someone is defining legalism this way. Legalism is the tendency to regard as divine law things that God has neither required nor forbidden in Scripture. And the corresponding inclination to look with suspicion on others for their failure or refusal to conform. And so here's a good question. Do you evaluate the status of moral law? Or excuse me, let me, let me re reread that. Do you elevate to the status of moral law something that the Bible does not require? And if you have done that and expect others to live by the laws you have created, then you're doing what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for doing. So this distorts the gospel by legalistic addition. You're adding to the gospel. Folks, do you see the danger of that? There's dangers on the lawless side and the legal legalism side. It's dangerous. So what's the answer? Well, let me first of all ask you this. Are you willing? Are you willing to let God tell us what to do here? Are you willing to follow Bible principles here? The fact of the matter is, Paul could have said some things he does not say. And, and by extension, the Holy Spirit could have had Paul say some things he did not say. For instance, Paul could have said, you who are weak, or that's the, the term in Romans 14, sensitive is the word we're using. You who are sensitive should start eating meat. Now, wouldn't that solve everything? Isn't that what some of us want to say to people? Hey, just get over it. Just... Just, just get over it. Get past your scruples and, and just, just do what, whatever it is we're talking about. Paul never said that. Paul never said, if you have a sensitive conscience, just get over it. He never says that. He could have also said to the strong, you know what? If you're strong, you ought to stop eating meat entirely. He never says that either. Now I'm going to let you go home and think about the significance of those statements being left out of the Bible. <coughs> Paul's solution was love, not lawlessness. 
Paul essentially said, I have freedom to eat meat for the glory of God, but I, I welcome Christians who don't have that freedom. And you know what Paul even said? He said, when I'm with them, I don't eat meat. And I don't brag about the fact that I do when I'm around them. I don't parade my freedom. To the legalistic, he said, you know, uh, Paul's solution again was love. And it sounds something like this. I may abstain from eating meat, but I still welcome Christians who disagree. I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to condemn them. I'm going to love them. <coughs> Which is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 22, to the weak became I as weak. Talking about conscience issues. He's not, he's not saying, all right, let me, let me finish and come back and apply. To the weak, to the sensitive, became I as someone with a sensitive conscience, that I might gain those with a sensitive conscience. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Some people, you know what they say about that verse? Some people say, well, you know what? We got we to be all things to all men, so let's, let's, let's do what the sinners do so we can win sinners to Jesus. That is not what Paul is saying. Matter of fact, Paul is saying just the opposite of that. It's not us taking part in their sins so we can win them. No. He's saying let's show them the gospel by living like Jesus. And when it comes to other believers... You know what? We can disagree, but we ought to still love each other and we ought to still be unified. And that is a powerful testimony about the gospel and about God. So are you willing? Paul's solution was love. And love is a choice. Because there are some people with sensitive conscience who are hard to love. And there are some people with strong consciences who are hard to love. But it is a choice. Are you willing to make the choice to love? flexible in disputable matters. Why? Because we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. We have to keep the kingdom, the gospel advancing. And unity builds that. Unity enhances that. Unity undergirds that. Disunity destroys it. And it may, it, it may destroy gospel opportunities to the point that they never have that opportunity again. Uh, we may never have opportunities again with certain people. I 
Are you willing to be flexible in these areas for the advancing of the gospel? And not only that, but for the edifying of other believers. This is the Great Commission. Making followers of Christ. And if we aren't willing to show love to those who don't think like us or don't agree with us, if we aren't willing to show love to the strong or the weak, wherever we come down on issues, you know what? We aren't going to be able to help each other. We're going to be constantly pointing fingers and accusing and, and, and judging. And not only are we turning sinners away, we're turning other saints away. Rather than presenting the Spirit of Christ Which is love. 